0: Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With 5 Minutes to Chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Hello everybody, Steve Kerr here, your host of 5 Minutes to Chaos. 5 Minutes to Chaos is an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers, crisis leaders, and incident commanders that have led their teams through complex and challenging situations. We have with us today a special guest, Nora O'Brien. Nora is both uh, a friend and colleague, Uh, She is a a peer in the uh, emergency management consulting space. She runs a successful emergency management consultancy out of the Sacramento area, California. I'll ask her to to tell you about her background and her business. Welcome to the show, Nora.
1: Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's always love. It's lovely to talk to a colleague that understands emergency management. And that's something I've always appreciated about our conversations because they're rich with know if you know you know kinds of conversations so that's been great so i'm the founder and ceo of connect consulting services we are emergency management business continuity disaster resilience company we've been in business it's crazy to say this 15 years this year uh in business which is also a survival um in itself given the pandemic and so many of other kinds of disasters but we what our what we do is help organizations plan for, respond to, and recover from disaster, and as and best we can do that through planning, training, drills, exercises, compliance, for, you know, um, response support uh, to our clients, and our whether it's communities or individual organizations or utilities that we're working with. Our goal is just to give them put have the, their employees know what to do in time of disaster. And how we can best support their resiliency efforts to bounce back—not just to survive disaster, but thrive after disaster.
0: So we're in the same space. We haven't—I uh, uh, don't think we've competed against each other. We've pursued some work together, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's important for the for the audience to know. The other the the other reason I I talk about the business component of this is because. Uh, both of us have public sector backgrounds and it is important to know that uh, and to recognize and and I and I I can't imagine senior people in the business don't understand this that emergency management exists in the private sector not only in organizations that are protecting their own assets and personnel workforce but also in the on the consulting side and the consulting sector is as important as anything else especially going back uh, to uh, you know my my experience working with consultants goes back to the domestic preparedness program, the 120 cities non luger program, which was a successful federal program. And some of that success was based on the talent that uh, the Department of Defense, then the Department of Justice, then the Department of Homeland Security. I'm talking about different time periods of the during the legislation right. brought to the table, you know people like uh, uh, yeah, Kyle Olson. You know we both know Kyle. I don't mind giving Kyle a shout out. He's a good friend. I saw him in New York recently at a memorial, and uh, it's you know, Kyle was one of our consultants back back in the nineties, and Kyle is still in the business uh, as are we, and and what we bring to the table in the emergency management services sector really is the talent, and uh, and I certainly appreciate the work. The work that you do you know you mentioned utilities I have a utility background and we both have utility people uh in our wheelhouse and and mm-hmm. uh, and that's and that's a good place uh you know to start
1: for sure and where we started where I actually started emergency management I knew absolutely nothing when I got started 21 22 years ago um, it was right after 9 11. Um, Congress had appropriated the first planning dollars to healthcare organizations to plan for disasters. I was working for a California primary care association, a state organization of community health centers that serve underserved communities. And my boss said, can you go to this meeting? And I knew nothing. My background is actually public policy and um, public policy in a lot of Uh, And on every kind of social issue under the sun, whether it's an environmental, you know, environmental uh, concerns or, you know, uh, welfare, child welfare issues, also worked on reproductive rights. And when I went to this meeting, like I said, I, I often joke, I knew how to spell emergency management. I knew nothing. I walked into this meeting and I kind of fell in love with this field because for several reasons, one It's about community. What a lot of people forget about emergency management, is not just being there when the disaster strikes. It's all of the work and the machinations that take to build those relationships and disaster prior to that disaster happening. And that's where the resiliency comes. You know, uh, I think that's where a lot of senior leaders don't invest in creating, um, having emergency managers and really paying attention to the importance of emergency managers You know, the activation piece of of the work as an emergency manager is a small amount of work when disaster strikes. It's all of the work of identifying risks uh, well in advance, identifying relationships, identifying partners, who's going to be there when disaster will happen, and, and training the staff on what those procedures are, writing plans, figuring out in advance, and then when disaster does strike you know, activating and being as efficient, as effective as possible and getting to recovery as quickly as possible and taking all those lessons learned you know, around that emergency management cycle. And um, like I said, I knew very little when I, when I joined that, you know, was, went very doe-eyed into this meeting of knowing nothing and walking into EMS, California Department of Public Health, hospital system, skilled nursing, and I knew nothing. I was here representing the clinics and I got a uh, but I love this field because we're so committed to uh, process improvement. I've never met any kinds of individuals in my in vast career that people are just intensely unknowing on how can we do it better the next time because we unfortunately you and i both know is that there will be a next time and the next time's not going to look exactly different though you know it's going to look different than the way it, you know we're going to have a future pandemic we're going to have future severe weather events we're going to continue to have you know more tornadoes and, and also in places that are we're not quite used to due to climate change so um so understanding that process improvement connection and understanding the importance of that is not just writing a report and patting ourselves on the back because we did things well, but more importantly, how can we do it better the next time? What are the systems and process that we need in order to make it better for next time?
0: You know, I appreciate you talk about emergency management being about the community because where I come from, And this is a lesson taught to me very early in my emergency management career. Emergency management is about people, and that's the community. And it is a emergency management, and this is the language I use, is a people-first business. I really like the way you use the word community, though, because the community, and I'm not talking about like the whole community. Certainly, we think of it that way. But I'm talking about in the grassroots, I'm talking about at the... Residential level at the small business level. So mm-hmm. I appreciate you. Uh, yeah,
1: I mean, and I think because I, one. yeah, because I had so many years as a community organizing. I was a union organizer. I took ten thousand people on strike in L.A. County. Um, I um, did a lot of actions. I did um, a lot of advocacy around people. And there's a lot of similarities between emergency management and and community organizing. The, the, the tenants are pretty much the same, you know, you're talking about inclusiveness. Everyone's got to be at the table because if you don't have a plan for people that are homebound or people that are seniors or children or whatever, they have additional, you know, the whole point of access and functional needs kind of kind came out of that. If you don't plan for those individuals, you're going to have bad outcomes that which we don't want to have, um, whether it's bad health outcomes, but, or, you know, more people are going to die, et cetera. Um, and so there, there's inclusiveness, there's also the, you know, also you you're at, there's a saying in, a, in a community organizing that we say all the time, you're either at the table or on the menu. And same thing with, with emergent communities that come together and really think about who's missing, who's not here. It should not be your, and I really, I, I want to give some homework to our listeners and say, If you have a uh, LEPC or, you know, uh, a local planning committee or a local healthcare coalition or whatever kind of planning table you're sitting at, if you have what I call the usual suspects, you're doing it wrong. You need to include communities of color. You need to include community-based organizations. You need to have folks that are that because they're going to they're you're going to expand extend your commitment to um, resiliency, you're going to, that's where your resiliency is going to come because you've already considered folks that normally are not at the table.
0: So, so are are we not doing that well? Let me tell you why I asked that question. And I asked this question uh, from the perspective of getting it right and doing it better. My background is in New York City. uh, Mm -hmm. As you know, Mm -hmm. I was one of the founding members of New York City Emergency Management. New York City by its very nature, is a broadly diverse community. Uh, At the time I was there in the late 90s, there were close to 200 uh, ethnic groups represented by something to the tune of 172 or 180 languages. And we had an office, part of the mayor's office, Mayor's Office of International Affairs that helped us manage languages during activations and stuff like that. My point is, where I come from, the inclusiveness seemed natural to me because it was just the communities we dealt with and we had the right people and the right ability to do that. But broadly, as a profession in an emergency management, we have um, a a culture of uh, DEI um, professionals within emergency management that are, are pushing hard to make sure that we include the right ethnic groups, the right genders, uh, use the right uh, uh, use the right language, you, whether it's a foreign language or English language, and how people represent themselves and stuff like that. Are we not doing it well? Or um, I want to ask the question carefully: How co- are we not doing it well? Should we be doing it better?
1: Well, I guess my question. So I'm gonna I'm gonna respond to that. What I see is there are places where it's not just a DEI initiative. Um, it's is your community, is your, you know, whether it's a local planning committee or whether it's a healthcare coalition or whatever, whatever table you're sitting around, it's not just is it well represented. It's the, the issue is, is what I see is pockets of places where that are doing it great. And there are some great communities and, you know, we can spend probably all day talking about how wonderful these communities are. What I have seen, and so 22 years in business now, I mean, 22 years in the field and, you know, 15 15 years in the field as a business owner and, you know, additional seven years in the field. What I've seen is in communities where there's high disaster threat, like Tornado Alley, like, you know, you know, pick, and where I'm from in California, you know, we're also known as the Act of God theme park, you know, because whether it's floods, fire, hurricane, earthquake, et cetera, pick a day, you know, pick a, you know, pick a a disaster. But um, we're in communities where there aren't as great of risks. I see that there's a lot, a lot more work to do. So I can't make a broad, you know, generalization like that, but I can see, I've seen great communities do things but I, I think that we can do better. And, and it's not just because we want to make sure that um, certain ethnic groups are represented or et cetera, it's, or genders or whatever that may be. It's just what I can tell you is if your uh, communities, uh, planning groups, whatever that looks like in, in your jurisdiction, whether it's your utility or your healthcare coalition or, you know, in your in our county or city, et cetera. If it's not looking like how the, the makeup of your community, it means that your organization, your, your community is not going to recover as fast as it should, because you're going, oh yeah, we forgot individual, these individuals or this individual or this, you know, this type of group, et cetera. So it just, and, and here's the thing, the margin for error on disaster recovery is going to get smaller and smaller that we're going to, we're going to, because we're going to continue to have more severe weather events we're going to have things like i used to always joke well california we don't need a tornado plant you know what happened in 2022 there were four tornadoes in the state of california um in by may of 2022 there had been zero tornadoes in tornado alley any of the United states like texas you know like uh you know texas and you know to kansas and those kinds of the midwest places that that they generally have tornadoes all the time and they plan for them and so what i can say is so we can't always say we've always done it this way i think that's going to be a death knell of communities we've always done it this way because that's if you're not going to grow and you're not going to and you're not going to survive because we don't want you just to survive we want you to communities and organizations and agencies and you you know utilities we want them to thrive after disaster but if you say we've always done it this way that's not going to happen so it's do better is my and 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 even those communities are doing great what else can you do what what other things can how can you better put your heads together and it's not not just throwing grant money at it uh, but it's but growing at you know Broadening the perspective of, of, the, of the audience will allow communities to better, you know, better recover faster. Because that's what's important.
0: Yeah, I, I think, um, I think, even going back to, to my time in New York, I think of some of the strategies that we had for response to major incidents. So let's talk about hurricane planning mm-hmm. for a minute we had an extremely robust evacuation model that was put together using uh, Army Corps of Engineering, uh, slosh maps, sea land over lake search from hurricanes, uh, storm inundation uh, modeling. We knew the flood zones in New York. We had New York City Transit Authority buses set to pick up people at at bus stops, essentially. And then they would take them to uh, uh, an evacuation uh, reception center it would in a large facility. I'm thinking of Queens and Brooklyn right now. They would go to right. a large, and from there they would be, if needed, because these facilities were still near the coast, they would be taken to uh, locations more inland, upstate, or, upstate or, or, or in, even New Jersey if needed. But I'm thinking of the gaps that existed even there. Not everybody can make it to a bus stop. Not everybody can ambulate to a bus stop. Not everybody right. has like a car. A homebound so, person the yeah. case
1: that needs an aid that's ventilator dependent, you know, that's a good example of like, you know, uh, and... and I'm not here to just to shake finger at communities and say, do better. No, I don't
0: hear it that way. I, I don't no. hear it that way. I, <laughs> I think we recognize Nora, you and I as emergency management leaders as, as part of this leadership community, that there are underserved communities that we all serve, whether we're serving them as part of uh, a, a consulting. I, I got a call just, uh, just before the podcast from, uh, uh, a, 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 an organization that cares for people with access and functional needs, and they wanted a you know, they wanted some help with uh, continuity planning. So, so w- when we do that, you know, if we if we're engaged, I gotta be sure that we get it right, and I appreciate that you're really focusing on that.
1: Yeah. I think the other issue is so. So, I've worked a lot in healthcare. So, we're experts in the Centers for Medicare, Medicaid Services, um, emergency preparedness compliance standards that came out in 2016 that said kind of bring not just hospitals up to the same standard, like joint commission emergency preparedness. Uh, I was just going to say,
0: is this, is this Jaco stuff?
1: Yeah, this is joint, it's joint commission, but it's also. Um, there's some people out there that will lose their mind if you say Jayco. They changed their name to the Joint Commission. You're supposed to on high only say the Joint Commission or TJC. I'm like, okay, fine. But with well, CMS. You did, know,
0: Nora, I say I want to walk away from each of the episodes with a, a nugget that I've learned, and okay. let's chalk that up to. To one of them because i don't want to insult anybody and, you're not
1: insulting no and it's, if
0: it's the joint commission i'm on board
1: it's they they changed their name to the joint commission fair okay. enough okay that's great it was a number but you of, knew
0: what jaco was
1: oh i knew exactly what jaco was so it's the same organization so it's accrediting body for um for hospitals um they also have skilled nursing and ambulatory surgical centers and amb- mm-hmm. so they do other kinds oh. of accreditations but um, uh, in 2016, some of this came out of um, came out of Hurricane Katrina, but also S- Superstorm Sandy, which you and I'm sure we worked, um, and um, and uh, what they found was hospitals because they've had Joint Commission compliance standards for emergency management, you know, uh, had more robust plans, but. All these 16, 17 other providers, which is skilled nursing, hospice, home health, um, you know, ambulatory surgical centers, um, et cetera, did not have the robust plans, uh, primary care. Um, and so they wanted to bring everybody up to the same standard. So in 2016, they required that every healthcare provider, it's a condition of participation. So if you're taking Medicare, Medicaid, you're required to have, um really robust emergency plans and you have to do an an, an annual hazard vulnerability analysis to know what your risks are for every single site. So some of these healthcare providers we work with have 35 sites. Well, you have to have an HVA and, you know, your topography is going to be different. So if you're part of the desert or your, your healthcare facility is in, you know, is downtown LA, whatever that may be, you're going to have different risks. You know, whether it's you kind know, of workplace violence or, you know, uh, you're right next to a chemical plant, the potential chemical release kind of thing, knowing what those risks are, have a plan for each of those facilities and also understanding continuity of care because not it's not just, oh, it's really nice if you have a plan, but, you know, your building might be damaged due to an earthquake or a tornado, you know, and do you know how to continue to serve your patients? Do you set up an alternate care site? Do you come, you know um, you triage your patients to another healthcare setting, or do you coordinate with another healthcare provider that's outside of even your, you know, your, your a provider type and say, Hey, can you help us? We need to, or we need patients. We need clients. We need, you know, whatever, you know, we need uh, healthcare providers, et cetera, or doctors, nurses, et cetera. So um, those emergency preparedness compliance standards for healthcare, um, are really important. And there's other agencies, like a good example, a, another kind of another regulatory requirement, um, is the, um, um, American infrastructure water act that came out a couple of years ago, the yep. water Awea, that, um, required every water agency. Some of them had not updated their emergency operations plans and done every
0: water own. agency that, um, provided water to a population of more than 3300 people
1: okay which is a lot of them of course and some of them hadn't uh,
0: upped- i mean i i say that because like what is with the arbitrary distinction right so but right. but i was at the time that came out i was uh head of emergency management for water utility in colorado right. so so w- my team was, was part of that assessment i'm sorry no yes.
1: yeah, no but i'm saying but AWIA and CMS. I think it's great to have some regulatory kind of teeth to these um, requirements. Um, sometimes for senior leaders, that's the only thing that gets them like, okay, I'll fa- all of a sudden dedicate resources and train my staff on these emergency procedures because I'm required to do it via mm-hmm. regulation. But um, but the best practices are the more that, you, know, you not just write a plan, but more importantly, test the plan with an exercise.
0: So you're absolutely correct. And I, I have to just parrot what you said. And uh, th- this comes up frequently. Th- this came up the other day in conversation. There's a South Florida uh, Association of Continuity Professionals, ACP group, uh, that's forming. And we speak frequently about this. And it it is my opinion that... Businesses and organizations are not regulated, meaning compelled to have crisis management business continuity programs, essentially, will not have them. So which organizations are better prepared to respond to uh, foreseen and unanticipated events? Those that have uh, been compelled to do so. So we're talking about uh, Joint Commission Regulations for Healthcare Institutions. You already mentioned... Uh, water utilities, so that's mm-hmm. the uh, the uh, the AWEA, uh, American Water Infrastructure Act. So let's talk about uh, electric utilities for a minute. You have NERC and FERC. Mm-hmm. You have uh, federal energy regulatory commissions that are enforced by uh, uh, NERC, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, all representing the Department of Energy. They promote. Um, something to the tune of 14 or 15 critical infrastructure protection standards that were utilities, electric utilities are required. Because they have these programs, electric utilities are fairly robust in the United States, regardless of what you read about, uh, you know, the grid being vulnerable. The grid's vulnerable in any number of ways from a security perspective to an overburdened perspective because of the amount of use uh, you know you see on the grid. Mm-hmm. And exposure to environmental conditions such as wildfire, right. but at the same time, the electric utilities are still pretty, pretty robust. But organizations, let's take a, something in the manufacturing sector. If they're not manufacturing a public safety oriented widget, they're probably not going to have a very robust program. And, or and something I mean, buried so deep in risk management right. or or security that it it just doesn't have much value.
1: Right. And and we you know we work with state and local government we work with utilities we work with healthcare you know we've been lucky to work also with community based organizations what we have seen is oftentimes people have a plan you'd be surprised in the number of people that don't have a plan but some people have a plan
0: no I wouldn't be surprised but <laughs> but I know I right. know I know what you're but, saying but I mean it's 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 a it's a critical point.
1: Right, but they have a plan. that's the other thing too. this is we're going to talk about exercises for a minute that a lot of people have a plan. they go, that's going to protect me because I wrote it down nine years ago and I haven't looked at it since. Think about how your organization or agency or business has changed since then. You probably have more or less or you you move to remote or whatever those things are. and that's something that we're not just looking for your business to say, hey, we really want to review your plan. Because if it's, it's, you know, kind of like how your dishes and your laundry is never done, your plans are never done. You want them to be as like dynamic as you are, as you are, as your organization is. And to, and the whole point is to guide your staff so they know what to do. I mean, um, uh, so what a lot of people do is they might have a plan, but it's not exercised. And even if you just do a tabletop exercise, you know, a discussion-based exercise of, Hey, we've got this situation, and then you write, and then you more importantly write an after action and say what we did this well, or hey, we forgot some stuff. This is now we need to update that improvement plan that you created and update your plan based on those findings. What my pet peeve about exercises in we can go on for forever if you want me to talk about it, but. People that do like evacuation drills in like two and a half seconds and they just you know we get out of the building. Well, no, you your 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 exercise, your you know, your drill of evacuation has to be based on what your evacuation plan says. And oh, by the way, where your point assembly point is, you could, there's things that you could do that are low-tech, you don't need a lot of gadgets. You could have two people, let's say you have two exits out of your building and one assembly point. Out of one, you know, if you're going out of one area and an adult additional assembly point that you would all assemble out after after you evacuate the building. So let's say you have two people in red shirts go, we're fire, you can't go out this way, and you go out the other one and go, oh, our assembly point that is gets us out of that out of the building, and it's so only can hold twelve people, and we have fifty people to get out of the building. Those kinds of things are the, the Kind of, you know, the low tech and also maybe even the high tech things that we can do that, that, you know, our goal is, again, not to just, you know, work with a consultant forever, you know, forever in a day. Our goal is to help your staff understand that, you know, you build an evacuation drill and you design that based on what the plan says and then you write an after-action report, and then you execute that improvement plan based on, hey, we yeah. forgot stuff, those kinds of things. So
0: we're, we're starting to see a bit of a flip in the way um, the cycle of risk assessment, planning, exercising works, and a number of consulting companies... Uh, are are taking this posture and i like it and i'm starting to talk to the potential clients this way instead of culminating with an exercise let's say a tabletop starting with an exercise because if we're going to go in and do a, a risk assessment people are going to be asleep by 10 minutes and yeah. uh and yeah. you know nobody really wants to talk about that so what we're starting to do is conceptualize uh and and you know there are a couple other you know notable consulting companies doing this is recommending to clients that we start with a tabletop exercise. And what you do is if you're savvy enough, you pepper the conversation uh, about this scenario with, well, you know, what other risks are out there? What have you experienced in the last couple of years you know and before you know it you're having a whole conversation about hey remember that blackout two years ago where we you know we, we weren't able to produce widgets and uh, hey remember that tornado and everybody had to go right. sit in the shelter so so that that's uh that that's one philosophy and and then you have engaged engagement you have a, a team of people at an organization that are engaged do the planning get them to the table and, uh, oh, plan development, too. I'm starting to look at a workbook model. I don't believe EOPs or SEMPs, whatever you want to call them, crisis management plans are right. worth their weight because mm-hmm. during an incident, nobody has time to no look, look through at a 50-pound plan. But yeah. if you have a five-page uh, playbook, you can look at that. And yeah, I think you'll a... get more out of that.
1: Yeah, we do that as well. I mean, what I often joke is – if you've got a seven inch binder and it's beautifully color-coded and oh god bless you it might serve as a uh, doorstop to get your ass out of the building if you have to evacuate will not help you in a disaster
0: exactly exactly you
1: know i mean we actually there's one hospital that reached out to us and wanted to update their pandemic plan this is right when covid hit their plan was 1200 pages
0: that's no, no there's no value in that because well, nobody's going never read even that.
1: cracked it during covid because what was the point point? and there are rhode island hospital that served you know they're you know right next to boston and you know served quite a lot of patients yeah. and they never even cracked it so that's the other thing too i mean I, I i'm with you you know i'm very much with you on that you know the playbook ideas is the way to go because the other thing too is we can only you know we can only absorb so much information. Um, you know, one thing that we love to do when we do business continuity planning, I mean, people don't understand often, and this is something we try to convey, is that the planning process is more rich in conversation than actually what ends up in the plan. So the conversation when you're doing a business of act analysis to say, what are your essential functions? for your department. And what are the recovery, recovery recovery time objectives, the RTOs when that has to come back up after disaster? And then what are the dependencies? Is it space, staff stuff, you know, supply chain, whatever that may be? And then what is the impact score if that thing does not come back up? Is it zero is regulatory issues? Is it a life safety issue? Is it a, you know, re, revenue impact? And those kinds of conversations that you have that, that you're able to lead because oftentimes people try to do it internally and it's sometimes better, uh, kind of like we're Switzerland where we don't know that two departments have not, have hated each other intensely since 1987. We don't give a shit. We, we could care less, you know, um, our goal is just to be able to lead that process, you know, and, um, we can ask tougher questions but also ask in a way they never would do that internally you know like oh okay i hadn't thought about that oh if well- you if the- if you don't
0: have people at the table doing exactly what you're saying mm-hmm. you have what's called and this term was coined in the late 70s by dr eric after in his yes. book, Disaster Management. Of course, called, love, love Right, so people our age know who that is, and yes. I mean that with all respect. I read about.
1: him in grad school. Yay.
0: Of course, right, we all did. And he coined a term, the paper plan syndrome, which is literally a binder on a shelf that has no value. It is the planning process that is is the is the most important. I want to uh segue into crisis management and you have some wildfires to talk about and to yeah. do that i think a great a transition is mentioning episode 10 of this podcast is uh an interview i did with a a hospital a healthcare emergency manager in the boulder area colorado and uh he talks about um catastrophic wildfire and the impact mm-hmm. on his hospital and evacuations chris malliard and I yes. call Chris out he's a, you know excellent uh yeah. seasoned healthcare emergency manager do you know chris
1: yeah i know of him we've our our crosses paths for our path has crossed
0: yeah so, and he he, he he talks he talks about the uh the largest uh wildfire in uh in colorado by way of infrastructure Over 1000 homes were lost and uh, the impact on the hospitals that he was responsible for, and the crisis management decision making process they want to. So I would encourage people to do that. And then that's a great segue for us, Myra, because you have some experience with uh, wildfires, um, in particular, one called the Cedar Fire and Katrina. And I'm interested in, as, as are the, the listeners, which is why we, you know we ha- we, why they dial in to hear some of your thoughts about crisis management critical decision-making and critical incidents and stuff
1: for sure um the cedar fire is the first disaster that i worked um so i um started like i said when i got started i got asked to go to this meeting i was uh working at the california primary care association representing the nonprofit community health centers and i knew how to spell emergency management so i knew very little as i said um, and the first disaster was that Cedar fire happened in San Diego um, in the rural parts. I mean, people don't realize how rural San Diego County, um, most people think just, you know, the sun and the, you know, and uh, I'm going off the quick way to get to Tijuana, but so much part of San Diego, East San Diego is very, very rural. And, um, and the Cedar fire took out quite a bit of not just homes, but infrastructure and that was a big lesson learned for me in that because we were working with community health centers representing them. One of them, Mountain and Community Health Services, kind of, they were a community health center that served the residents of that part of East County, East San Diego County. And what they ended up doing, which is very interesting, is that they had a community center that they normally, uh, when it wasn't a disaster, would just serve seniors and did a, had a food program that, um, they had a food program and so of making sure that people, you know, they fed people on a regular basis. Well, when, when the Cedar fire happened, they actually ended up serving as a unauthorized, um, you want to call it that, um, uh, Red Cross shelter and request refused to, Red Cross refused to serve uh, to uh, send them resources and really designate, even though the community knew that that's where you go for resources, and they ended up sending um, setting up a Red Cross shelter at the hosp- at the, the high school that was like five miles away and but everyone knew this community center. and so well, that was a, Why
0: the resistance kind of... why the resistance to do that? Why was the Red Cross uh, reluctant to, to, to support that?
1: Here's the thing. This is no, um, no ill will towards the Red Cross. Oftentimes the discussions that are made um, at the Red Cross level about where we set up, you know, shelters is sometimes made, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away go, well, we know we already had one here, you know, 20 years ago and um whatever that may be um and um and as a result um so they had like maybe a long standing maybe some other kind of event had happened previously and so they said oh that's a good idea but they what they didn't understand is because red cross officials that are in sacramento which was you know 700 miles away or you know um other parts didn't understand but that's where the community went so that's where the disconnect kind of happened in that one P, uh community so i want to fast forward to the wildfire of 2007 so 2007 wildfires i mean when I was
0: know, cedar uh fire. cedar
1: was 2003 okay. so what ended up happening was mountain community health services um they kept on They still serve the people and they end up serving, actually, actually served at a shelter and that they end up sheltering people for about two weeks. They made sure they made sure the firefighters were fed. They made sure, and they, but what they did have, but they, you know, they didn't have a relationship with with previously with Red Cross. They did have a relationship with San Diego County. And what San Diego County did is they got them resources. They got, you know, they got food, they got meals, they got cots, et cetera, so that they could serve Um, uh, and provide resources. Um, And to me, that was a real eye opening experience that, you know, decisions that are made that are not at the community level, sometimes really can impact community recovery. So fast forward to 2007 wildfires, Red Cross and Mountain and Community Health Services, came together in, in over those times and built real, built that relationship. So when a, her, another horrific wildfire hit in 2007 um, in Southern California, there was like pretty much like half of the, you know, like the lower, like third of the state was on fires, like seven counties from like San Diego up to Santa Barbara across, you know, there was, there's wildfires um, driven by again the, you know, the low humidity, high winds, you know, uh, lots, lots of, uh, brush. And that was in October 2007. So fast forward to 2007, because that Mountainei community health services and red and the local red cross had built that relationship. So when that event happened, the interesting thing happened was that, um, they worked together and actually they, the Mountain Community Health Services Community Center served as, as the designated Red Cross shelter. So they got resources from Red Cross. They got resources from the County. Um, and they actually ended up sheltering people for well over, I think, close to a month. They even shelter, I don't know how they did this. They were sheltering like, um, cause, because it's a rural part of San Diego. They ended up sheltering, um, like farm animals, and uh, they had some wolves, and I don't know. There were a whole bunch of, you know, there's quite a lot. But I guess that to me, that lesson learned was at the local level, if those relationships aren't built, it's hard to do it. What I call, I don't, I'm not a big fan of what I call just in time relationships. Uh, in that you're handing over your business card when you're sitting in the emergency operations center is the r- exact wrong time to build a relationship because whoever you're I, handing the business card to does not know who you are and what your services are and what you and, we say and- that
0: often on this podcast the worst time to hand out a business card is at a command post or in an eoc yeah. and we also talk about what's called rolodex management uh-huh and whether you, I like you that. know you know, you have to carry around your Rolodex with you. Now, there was a time and place where I would carry four four or five Rolodexes in a bag. Today, that's a cell phone. Right. but, But what I encourage people to do, and this is a simple emergency management life hack, tag your contacts. So put a keyword in there. Electric right, utility like or, or logistic or human resource or dry cleaners or kosher food, because these are the people that you need at Zero Dark 30 oh, to totally. get stuff done. And it's really about picking up the cell phone and calling them direct and getting stuff done. Right. That's I, I enough on Rolodex yeah. management.
1: Yeah. No, I like, no, but I like that. And I, I might steal that idea. So that's the other thing, too, about a couple of, you know, the, the tenants of emergency management that, that I live by is Semper Gumby for sure, you know, always be flexible because you'd never quite know what, what you're going to be dealing with and what kind of the outcome is of, 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 your decision-making. So like, that's the other, you know, what I, when I did this program at Harvard, I highly recommend this program, um, leadership in crisis. It's at Harvard Kennedy school of government. It's a seven day course they it went online unfortunately during covid but it's i think it's back in person it's phenomenal what i loved about it is i got to learn i got to meet emergency managers from all over the world and all different industries and all different you know you know private, private sector you know ngos etc it was phenomenal but we we learned something called the OODA loop which i oh, which yeah. i you know yeah, and the we loop,
0: spoke about that recently in one of the episodes yeah,
1: yeah. and you know the OODA loop process my understanding is it came from um it came from the air force air force pilots are often having you know they do night maneuvers and they're up and down and all around and sometimes have to make those split decisions so you want to um you want to you know the, the first o is to um observe observe
0: called, orient you know,
1: or orient and then decide and decide you decide act.
0: and act, right? Right. You no know?
1: and that's so and what's important to know about why it's a loop is that sometimes the decision you make in emergency management, it might be the opposite decision 10 minutes later as new information becomes allowed, you know. And I think that's an important tool and and, and something that we teach our clients often is that, you know, when you're making a decision and managing your disaster, and you're remember too, your disaster could be a global pandemic, it could be a water main break that only affects your building and your company, right? And that's a huge, you know, but that's still a disaster to you, right? But understanding that new information becomes available, you might have to make a different decision and different road. And that what I learned about that OODA loop process being important is that you're, you're that pivot is where you are able to, in that pivot moment of what you have, how you have to pivot, whether it's a d- new decision or a new road or a new action, understanding and why that planning team, you know, you're planning, you know, p- planning section chief and that planning part of incident command is so important and having them understand hey, if we make this decision to do X, what is the resource needs? What are the, what are the potentials for, you know, this, this kind of action that we take? So I think, um, I, my frustration. Continues to be in organizations that don't learn from the lessons, you know that they, you know, oftentimes, you know, they they do an exercise, and they never updated their, uh, they never either wrote an after action or never updated their plan based on the last exercise, and they have the exact same experience. Like so, okay. uh,
0: we have. Uh, I was part of a project in Colorado. Uh, I I know you know, most of the audience knows I was an emergency management uh, uh, leader at a utility, an electric water utility in Colorado for eight years. I was fortunate enough to work with the uh, emergency managers throughout the state, and uh, Lori Hodges um, is an emergency management director in the north part of the state. She, and she'll be on the podcast soon talking about this uh and you'll see where i'm going with this she led a, a project that um resulted in uh, the publication of a paper now i was not one of the named authors of the paper but i was part of the advisory group and it was the emergency management as a uh, complex adaptive system and while we did not use i don't recall us using OODA loop there was uh, a loop model a loop style model in there that led to adaptable decision making. What you're talking about is just that, because you have got to be nimble enough to be able to, and you use the word pivot, and I love that, uh, you make a critical decision, and five minutes later, new intel comes in, something's changed, you have to pivot and change it. You may have to retract the entire execution that you did and and come up with something new and you're doing this on the fly i mean you did say that this was developed by the air force the oodle loop can be something that's done in a contemplative manner with mm-hmm. the team sitting around the table and doing a proper assessment almost like a SWOT analysis right. or it could be a split second decision based on a quick oodle oodle loop analysis in your mind Uh, to make that decision incident commanders need to have this skill operations chiefs need to have the skill EOC directors crisis managers
1: right they certainly do and I think that um and the the scary part of making that decision is sometimes you don't know what the exact outcome will be but sometimes you know if it's life and limb you're going to make a decision you know know, you're going to make that decision probably it might even be more a split second than you you want to but um the other thing that that I really saw, um the other disaster, the big, big uh disaster that wildfire that was that I also worked. Ooh, it's hard to talk about. It's been five years now. It's coming on six years. But paradise. the the paradise campfire. So I have a friend of mine, she now works for California Office of Emergency Services. At the time she called me her disaster buddy and she was one of those um because we live we're about um i live about an hour and a half from the town of paradise um where they had the campfire in november of 2018 that um 80 87 people lost their um lost their lives and well over eighteen thousand structures burned in less than 48 hours um, and I think it was over close to a million miles of actual wildfire, um, acreage burned. And the, I have my girlfriend, um, OES buddy, she goes, uh, uh, you are going with me and we are going to go work this disaster. And so she's like, I'll be at your house at 6 AM. So we were there two days after the, after, after the post post campfire which was complete pandemonium at that point. And um, so we worked in the emergency volunteer center coordinating all of the volunteers, the 7,000 volunteers that were crushed into this little, um, this little home health agency. And um, the decisions that were made were, um, that had to be made about where, where to, you know, we were, I was not right in the county. I wasn't in, in the emergency operations center. I was in
0: Is Sonoma uh, County.
1: No, this was in uh, Butte County, but- um, Butte County, California, just near Oroville. where They have oral, oral uh, dam. That's oh, the dam. Yep, yeah. That was another,
0: another crisis yeah. a few years ago.
1: Oh, that was a fun one. That was a fun, yeah. I down.
0: remember that oh. one. I was with the uh, utility at the time and we had 26 dams in our inventory. So we kept a close watch on that one.
1: I'm sure. And you had damn damn plans, I'm sure, right? So oh yes,
0: we did. Yeah.
1: Those damn dams. So uh that was a, another fun yuck. That was 2017. Yeah. But um the decisions that we had to make were really fascinating. I mean, a good example, and um I, I wanted to say that the county again, not to to rake um San, uh, Butte County, a ba- a really bad planning thing, and here's a little tip was so in order to be a volunteer um, if for this event, you had to be certified as a disaster service worker. And most communities, you put up your hand and go, okay, well, blah, blah, blah. And you get to become a state, you know, disaster service worker, and you can go on and be, you know, have this person, whether they're going to work at a food bank or work at a health, you know, healthcare setting or whatever that may be, and they can and have some protections as a disaster service worker. Butte County, a a huge pain point in the emergency operations center that I was working at uh, for volunteers was that you had to be sworn in and notarized to be a volunteer, to be a volunteer. So what we ended up having to do was we had, we found basically every notary we can find within 300 miles go, can you come in and notarize these people? Because that's the only way you could you know, that way, the only way we can, we can coordinate these people. And, um, because there was this crush of volunteers, there were so many people that wanted to help because there was so much devastation. You know, the aftermath of that fire was that there were 965 kids that were in, um, Paradise High School. And no, there was 990 students, 965 of them lost their homes. Um, the principal for that high school had to had to move and had to leave his job because there were no homes. We had a 200 bed hospital that had to close for four years because not that there were the, the hospital was not burned. There was my, minor, minor damage, but there was no place for their personnel to live that was less than 100 miles away. So those, those are definitely some like aftermaths of that particular event. And so, um, you know, so there questions that in conversations and decisions that were made initially that really did impact the, you know, overall health of that community recovering from that wildfire. And the, the most devastating thing to me was, As part of the after action, um, one of the transmission line bolts that was this was the highest one of the highest wildfire threat areas in the state of California, like the highest and um, the transmission line was not buried. It was, uh, you know, it was due to the transmission line, um, you know, that's that start spark the spark the wildfire. One of the bolts was 101 years old. and to me um, I'm blaming I'm not the only one that's blaming oh, PGE, but that actually they were fined um, criminally they were um, you know for those 80cybin lives there are so many things they could have done How is it that no other time before the 101 years before this bolt had been in place and that was been part of that one that key transmission line, You know and um it was a frustrating situation oh one other thing i want to say about the notary so every once in a while i talk to butte county people emergency managers go hey by the way um did you guys ever fix that notary issue they're like nope we never fixed that (laughs) so if they have another event they're going to have to get everybody notarized if they want to be volunteers it's like yikes
0: So what does that need legislation to change? Or is that a a local thing? It's
1: a county, it's, it's just a county policy change and they never did it. And it made it, it, what it meant was that there was this backlog of thousands of people that wanted to support the community that couldn't because they had, we wanted to give them the protection as a disaster service worker and couldn't do that because we couldn't process people fast enough. So, um, and it would made it harder for the for for the community to recover faster because people wanted to help, but they wanted some protections.
0: That was a very dynamic hour. That was great. You speak fast like a New Yorker, and I certainly appreciate that. I can keep up with you, and uh, I think <laughs> was that was,
1: good? Did I give you some good? It
0: was, minutes? Uh, it was great discussion. Let me go over some uh, some notes that I took because we do a little bit of a of a recap. Sure. Um, You said uh, that you fell into emergency management. It's not the first time I've heard that in the last 24 hours because uh, episode 38 of this podcast dropped yesterday, which is a uh, power panel of three high-rolling female emergency managers, and each one of them in their own way said that they fell into it. Andrea Davis fell into it in California around Y2K, yeah. Mona Curry fell into it in the mid-90s, and then you have uh, Jamie uh, Um, She worked in uh, transportation in the New York area and meandered her way to D.C. and ended up uh, in emergency management. So you're not the first one, uh, first one uh, to say that. Unlike... Um, you know, people today that are pursuing careers and getting their degrees and, and, and looking for opportunities. But I mean, I'm certainly, certainly glad that you fell into it. You spoke well, about, good. I was
1: just going to say that I, cho- I was planning, on, I joined, I had my job at California Primary Association because I knew I wanted to go to grad school, but I didn't, I knew it was going to be public policy related, etc. cetera. And that's what my master's is in, in disaster emergency management. That's saw and, that, Yeah. But, at the time, I said I know I wanted I had this general idea of going to grad school but I didn't know what. And then then I got into EM, but I was in EM for probably 4 years before I ever got in into my program. So, but yeah, the people today are getting EM degrees are very interesting.
0: Well, you know? I, th- yeah, I got I have my observations about that. Uh, having been uh, an adjunct professor in Colorado, I taught both in classroom and remote uh, in the Emergency Management and Homeland Security program at one of the universities. Um, I think the degrees are fine, but I think without the boots dirty experience, mm-hmm. without the real world experience, do. those those degrees are right. really going to those degrees are not not going to help you much. So I would encourage people uh, to find a balance and. One more note to those youngins that are coming out of these in, these universities with these degrees, don't just find a shop, find an active shop. You have to stand watch in a crisis management center or an emergency operations center. Mm-hmm. You have to be on the front line. You have to be um, taking incoming from a, an elected official or from an emergency management director, neither of which who have slept in the last 24, 36 hours. Sure. I'm not saying that's a good thing but right. that's how you cut your teeth. So, so look for that. Yeah. I,
1: you're actually right. Um, Yeah. I, I get applicants for people. I've gotten applicants for people to have a master's degree in business continuity and have three months of volunteer experience and they want me to hire them. I'm like,
0: but, there, you know, there is opportunity for you to grow them, nurture them, oh, sure. mold them, and then give them that experience. You know, I look at it that way as well.
1: No, I'm happy to do that, but I just don't, but don't expect to get, come in at a salary for someone that's been in the field for 10 years. Oh, wait a
0: second. Everybody wants to get hired at 150 k so right. that's, right, mm-hmm. okay. I get that. I certainly get that. Okay, community and people. Use, use the word community. I say people first. We're talking about the same thing. I'm so glad to hear you say that because emergency management to me is a people-first business. Mm. uh, Rescue the people, life safety. House Mm. the people, feed them, human mass care. Then we'll worry about the infrastructure and the bridges. And uh, I want to make sure that uh, that the people come first. Your observations on inclusiveness, I believe, are spot on and fascinating. You said that... um, in uh, high disaster threat areas, uh, organizations, emergency management organizations, are better equipped to manage uh, DEI issues. They have more inclusive staffs, more diverse staffs, and organizations where risk is low do not, and that may be uh, by virtue of the fact that they're just they're just not that busy. and And I think there needs to be a balance. And I would strongly encourage uh, those low-risk EM operations, and these are probably not well-staffed, not well-funded, to make sure that they look around their area of responsibility, their AOR, and ensure that when they do have the opportunity to hire people, that they look at women and they look at uh, the ethnic groups that are uh, represented within right. the county. Within well, and the county. also
1: who's sitting at the local table is it the usual suspects, or are there other people they can reach out to? You know,
0: absolutely, uh, absolutely, and also it's not just ethnic diversity; it's also industrial diversity. If you live in an agricultural community, you need agricultural people at the table. If you live in an urban area, you need urban planners at, at the table, et cetera. Right. I mean, I'm just using that uh, as an as an example. Um, let's see a couple other points. Oh, the OODA Loop. I loved it. I'm familiar with it? It came up. Uh, one of the corporate crisis managers spent some time on one of the episodes recently talking about that. What we're talking about is a nimble and adaptable system, and and the what you're talking about is decision making model. You mean some some of that can come natural to emergency managers that have served as incident commanders because you're in that crisis management role. But at the same token, do a little research. Find the OODA Loop. Um, you can Google uh, the the paper or or contact me. Uh, the uh, emergency management is a complex adaptive system. MCAS. Uh, I can get that paper to you. Or you could probably find it uh, just by googling it. There's some good information there. And there's uh, I'm probably not going to say it right, but uh, it, it it came back to me. The model that that paper looks at uh, from a decision-making perspective is called the Canuvian model, and it's an Irish word, and I'm not going to do justice if I repeat it, so I won't, but I wanted to uh, to talk about that. And what, what really struck me as important is, I'm not picking on the Red Cross. Uh, this podcast is not a gotcha. So this is not about that. We need to be flexible, nimble, and adaptable, so everybody has to... Um, uh, all organizations that are part of the emergency management continuum, whether you're an NGO or you're a government organization or an allied uh, private sector organization that's providing uh, an emergency management support. You have to be nimble and adaptable. You can't just say you're not showing up. We have to, because well, of, the people, I mean, I, the, pe- I really the ones do, that suffer you know, most are the people.
1: Yeah. I think that we've always done it this way is going to be the death knell of communities. if Well, well we've always done it this way. Well, lot shit has happened a lot has changed you know so since and then.
0: then you spoke about uh, the 100 year old bolt I remember reading about that and I, I want to say that and uh this is this is pretty raw and so- sometimes we get raw and irreverent on the podcast we have all these buzzwords out there about prevention and resilience and uh, and uh, all that stuff is fine but all it takes is a bolt. All it takes is 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 the failure of something that should have been fixed. It's really about boots on the ground. This is not philosophy. This is getting stuff done. And, I'm, again, not here to do gotcha. I'm not picking on PG&E. They've already paid their dues, respectively. But um, we have to be uh, – I have – I have every reason to believe that we are well into climate change, so I'm I'm not denying any of that. But what I'm saying is we're already into it. Let's be sure that we have the right systems in place to prevent, not just talk about it, to prevent an incident from happening. And where that doesn't happen, we have to be able to execute on the crisis management response and warning mission. That came up recently in an episode with Kelly McKinney. We have got to be able, as emergency managers, to execute, I'm going to say it again, on the response and warning mission. And those, those emergency managers that are not doing that are not doing their job. That's my opinion.
1: I agree with you. I definitely agree.
0: Nora, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining. That was a great episode. We'll have it published uh, probably by the end of the month. I want to thank Nora O'Brien for joining Five Minutes to Chaos and for sharing her crisis management story and career experience Five minutes to chaos drops weekly on Thursdays. Please follow us or like us on your favorite platform, and set it to alerts. So excuse me, so you know when an episode drops. And welcome your comments or your questions, which can be submitted in the comments area of the show or directed to me on LinkedIn. And a special shout out and thank you to those of you that have been sending me notes, uh, complimenting the uh, the podcast and talking about how well you all enjoyed season one, which was twenty twenty three. Until next time, embrace the chaos.
1: Thank you. See you.
0: And that brings us to the end of this episode of 5 Minutes to Chaos. We hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way. Remember... Confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos.